Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writing in Faith, a podcast about the Christian and writing life. I'm your host, Daniel Dydek, and this week we're talking about places where we can find wisdom and inspiration for our daily lives and for our writing projects. Well, this week has been really a lot of fun for me. I've been spending a lot of time on book four plotting kind of the the really big steps, not getting into really nitty gritty. I don't do it that way. I like to discover a lot as I write, but plotting kind of the big major uh, milestones and things like that to help keep myself on track when I start to write. As I mentioned last week, this book is going to be a lot more complex and much bigger than certainly the last book was and actually bigger than any book I've written so far. So I want to want to do a little bit more pre-planning so I don't get lost as I'm as I'm writing the book. And so what I wanted to do for you guys is each week I'm going to talk about a little bit different topic on how I world build and how I've been getting ready for this thing. And this week, since it kind of ties in with where I get inspiration from, which we'll be talking about in the second half of today's episode, I want to talk about how I name the places and the people in this book, because that's been a lot of fun. And so the key thing about this book is there are four kind of cultures that you're going to run into as we go through the story, and they've all developed separately from one another. So their names, I wanted to make sure that they didn't sound anything like each other between the four cultures or the four communities, but then the names do sound the same within that community. So the two big ones are going to be the Kareist and the Wohan. The Kareist are kind of, I've for a while wanted to base them a little bit in kind of Greek culture without it actually feeling Greek per se, but getting that as sort of my source of inspiration for that that group. And then the Wohan, they're more of like a native kind of group. Um, a little more advanced than, say, the native group in The One Known, which you'll get to read in a couple months here when it releases. So they're a little bit more advanced than that, but I still want it to feel kind of like a little bit more native of a group. And so for the names for these two different cultures, I decided to get, obviously, Greek for the Kreist and then the Native American Lakota tribe for the Wohan. Now, they're not supposed to be an analogy of Native Americans at all. I'm not appropriating anyone's culture or anything like that. Because how I do this is languages, if you kind of read a bunch of words from the same language or if you hear the language being spoken, they all have a certain sound to them that you can kind of pick up on it. And you don't know the words, obviously, unless you studied it. But you can tell when French is being spoken or when German or something Germanic is being spoken. It might not be German. It might be you know, Austrian, which is very, very close or similar kind of Germanic or maybe like a Nordic tongue. There might be subtle differences that you can pick up on not having learned any bit of the language, but there's still kind of major key differences between the words, the flow and the syntax of them, but then also what kind of vowel or consonant sounds happen a lot. And so to do this for the Wohan, I found a Lakota to English and English to Lakota dictionary online. And so for some of them, I actually put in the English word that I want to be associated with this, either the settlement or the person, the character. And then, you know, it comes up with the Lakota words that mean that, but I don't just take the word and put it in there. I don't, like I said, I'm not trying to to make it be the Lakota people or their culture or anything like that. Just use it as kind of a source of inspiration. And so I, you know, I'll modify the word a little bit. I'll change maybe the vowel sound. Maybe I'll cut it in half. I'll read over the word a couple times in my head and figure out which part of it I kind of like, which part sounds the way I want it to, and then I'll use that. And then for a lot of the other ones, from doing that first exercise, I kind of start to get a sense of the sound of this language to a degree. Again, it's not going to be perfect. It's not supposed to be perfect. But I've noticed there's like, there's a lot of W's, a lot of O's and A's and K's and T's and kind of some very hard sounds with some long vowels and things like that. 
And so I use that as an inspiration then for other names that have no basis in a specific word in that language, but that still kind of evoke that sound to me when I read it or when I think about it in my head. And I ended up doing the same thing with the crease. I just, I Googled ancient Greek cities or something like that. And it came up with a, like a list that I could scroll through. And I read one after the other and not really rapidly, but kind of not without really thinking about it, just read each each name of the city and started picking up on the same kind of thing. Like what were some reoccurring sounds across these different names and how can I come up with a completely separate name that still sounds somewhat similar. And so that was a whole lot of fun. Actually, I was able to, I have this list of, I think 90 some names I need to come up with. I've been able to come up with most of them really pretty easily and quickly by doing this. So it was kind of fun. So that's one of the things I've been working on this past week. Almost done with that portion. Again, follow me on on social media, on Facebook or Twitter. I post an update at the end of the week. I have my little spreadsheet with tasks I need to get done and what percentage I am getting them done. I'm actually moving along really, really quickly. I'm over 50% done already. And I have, like I said, till the middle of March to get all this stuff built out. And I'm already more than halfway there. And I just started like two weeks ago. So it's been a lot of fun. So anyway, that's enough of that. Let's get into this week's topic. As we talked about in our first episode together, it's very important for Christians to memorize scripture. You know, even Jesus, in order to fight temptations from the devil, used scripture to do that. And he had to have them memorized to begin with. So it's it's kind of silly for us to think that we can do better against temptation than the Son of God without having memorized any scripture. And the verse we'll be looking at today, uh, like the Second Timothy verse, is another promise of God. This time it's a little more obviously so. And this verse is also one of the very first verses of scripture that I memorized intentionally. It's not like John 3.16, maybe, where if you're just in church long enough, you hear this verse enough times, it kind of, it starts to stick. This is one that I came across it, absolutely loved it, loved what it promised and what it said, and set myself down to, to memorize it so that when I needed it, I could quote it again. And it was one that came along when I was sorely lacking in wisdom, or maybe the first time I realized that I was sorely lacking in wisdom. So the verse is James chapter 1, verse 5 which says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. Wow, how easy is that, right? And what a source of wisdom. Is there anything hidden from the mind of God? You know, even our deepest internal thoughts that we don't share with anyone else, God knows and everyone else's thoughts and intentions as well. And I mean, could you think of any question that would surprise him? Is there anything you could ask you would think God who created the universe could possibly say, you know, I've never thought about that before. I'll have to think. And I like that it reminds us that God gives generously. Uh, We shouldn't expect just some random, obscure, old man on the mountain, riddle piece of wisdom that we've got to find other wisdom to even try to hope to solve. When we receive wisdom from a generous God, it's all the wisdom we need and maybe even a little bit more. Now, some of you may be looking at your iPhone or your radio or whatever you're listening to this through. You might be looking at it kind of skeptically, uh, maybe even ready to turn it off or skip to the next show because we've probably all received an answer from God that didn't make sense to us, didn't feel like wisdom or that we didn't understand right away, that we hear, you know, we, we believe we've heard the voice of God or his guiding, and you're just like, I, that's, no, that's not going to make sense. That's not going to work. I mean, I know I have more than once. So how can I say what I just said with as much confidence as I said it? Well, let's remember something else I mentioned in the first episode. A lot of times, if an answer from God is hard for us to understand, it's probably our fault. It's us either not having enough faith that he can do what he said he would, or maybe it's just not us believing that he actually spoke to us, that we think it's just our own minds answering. And that's a legitimate concern. That's something we need to be careful of and watch out for and make sure we try and discern when it's just our own will trying to guide us or when it's actually God. 
And sometimes the answer he gives me, I'm looking at my current life circumstances and looking at his answer and saying, okay, surely you don't mean for this to happen right now. This is down the road, right? You don't mean to necessarily get started on this right now. This is way in the future. And sometimes that is the case. He is, after all, the God who makes known the end from the beginning, as he tells us in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10. But I remember one time in my own life, he gave me clear instruction on a matter. And immediately I, I tried to reject it. I was like, there's no way you're actually asking me to do this. And as I argued the logistics with him, I can remember he finally said to me, I wouldn't tell you to do something that can't be done. And those were at first some very humbling words, but also very glorious and liberating and exciting. I mean, no matter what task he lays on our heart, it's never something that can't be done, which is amazing. The second reason why his wisdom may be difficult, and I'm not sure if you remember this too from our first episode, is because he still wants us to seek him. Like a trail of breadcrumbs, he may give us an answer that we sit and stew over for some time, then finally have to return to him again in our need for more wisdom, and maybe again and again and again. It's always important to seek him, to never think he has abandoned us to figure things out for ourselves or to do life for ourselves. His greatest desire is for us to spend every waking moment with him. He won't force us but he often encourages us, and sometimes most stringently. But before I leave off this topic and move on to the writing portion, I want to remind us of one other thing. Uh, It actually comes from verses 6 and 7 of James chapter 1. And it says, But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. This is interesting to me because so often when we talk about believing that we'll receive something when we ask for it and that if we don't believe then we're not going to get it but as long as we do believe we'll get it it's often about material things. Either you need finances to cover a bill or you know just whatever certain thing you need or maybe for an event to work out the way you want it to if you're a student maybe you you know if you pray for an exam to go well and you believe that you'll receive it then you actually get it. And oftentimes I've heard these two verses quoted just those two out of context of everything else, these two verses quoted for that exact purpose. And yet in context, God is talking specifically about when we ask him for wisdom. And the thing with wisdom is, even though its source may be supernatural, it of itself is not. Wisdom does not mean a random anonymous check in the mail or that you get the grade you want or the raise you need. Wisdom is something that you apply to a situation. It means studying for that exam instead of hanging out with friends or taking an evening off. It may mean working well and diligently using God's guidance to make good decisions so that you're rewarded by your bosses. Maybe it means cutting back on your spending so the extra money you need is available without increasing income. The main point, though, is that even if you receive wisdom, it can have zero effect on your life if you don't do something with it. So when you ask, believe and don't doubt. And when you receive, apply it. Don't just think, oh, cool, I know something now I didn't know before, but I don't feel like doing what God has asked, so I'll just keep praying for what it is I actually want. I can assure you, no matter how many amens you say at the end of those prayers or how many people you might be able to gather around you in agreement, you're no longer asking in Jesus' name. Once God has revealed his will, your next step is obedience, even to death on a cross as Jesus did. So, for us writers out there, does this mean we just ask God for inspiration when we need it? Well, yes and no. Let's talk about a couple things regarding inspiration. A while back, I was watching an author panel on YouTube. Uh, The convention that was hosting this panel recorded it and made it available online. And if you're unfamiliar with panels at conferences, you really should get familiar. Often there will be like topic-specific questions from the moderator that the authors will answer, but then at the end they open it up to general questions from the audience. And these things are incredibly helpful for authors and wannabes. So this particular panel, when they went to open up for audience questions, one of the authors laid out a few ground rules. 
including Don't Ask Us Where We Get Our Inspiration. I have to admit, I wished I had been on that panel so I could speak up and say, if you want to ask me where I get my inspiration, I'll be at table, whatever table I would be at after the panel. I think there's a lot of confusion around that question. The, uh, the question of where authors get their inspiration is because there's really two kind of meanings behind it, maybe three, depending on how we dice this out. But And usually people assume the first meaning. Uh, when people read books by, say, Neil Gaiman or Stephen King, oftentimes they wonder how people like that come up with the stories they do. They're just so creative and awesome. And that's the question that's almost impossible to answer. As a writer, some of my ideas for characters or setting or plot points or whatever just sort of come to me as I daydream, and I absolutely could not tell you where it came from. But the second meaning to that question, the one I think aspiring authors are really asking, and the one I'm about to answer, is how do I write creative stories? How do I create problems, and how do I solve them in a fun, interesting, and surprising way? The people who ask this question don't necessarily want to know the specific inspiration behind a story, but want to know how to get inspired. And maybe you too want to know how to get inspired. Because I could just tell you where I got the name Kibo, which is the main character for the one known. I could tell you that I saw a friend's shoe one day where the brand name Reebok had worn off a little bit, the K at the end was gone, and the top part of the R had rubbed off so it looked like a capital K. So instead of saying Reebok, it said Kibo. The problem with that answer is that it doesn't help you, except maybe for you to start looking at worn out shoes hoping for inspiration. The real answer is this, and it comes partially from our devotion earlier. Remember I mentioned that God desires us to be with him every waking moment. In the same way, when I'm working on a novel, I have the problem I need to solve on my mind at nearly every moment. Problems might be as simple as what to name a character. I wanted a name that evoked a sort of Rastafarian Islander, a pot-bellied, dark-skinned wizard, maybe with a little bit of sense of voodoo behind it. And so when I saw that Reebok worn down to Kibo, that name hit me just right. And most of the days, I'm doing this to a certain degree. There's at least one issue, like I said, whether it's a name or maybe a plot point or, you know, how do I get my characters out of this mess or the other mess. It's kind of on my mind a lot throughout the day. And so invariably, by having that there in my head, something will happen that will kind of trigger, whether it's watching a movie or a TV show or maybe reading a book. I don't obviously want to take the exact way that the other person solved the problem, but maybe something in it kind of jogs my memory or makes me realize how two pieces of the story that I've already kind of gathered, that there's a way to put those two things together. And oftentimes that happens too. That's that's another way to find these little quirks of inspiration is that just by creating so much, by having so many different facets to the cultures and to the people and the characters that just as I'm kind of dwelling on it throughout the day, these two completely different aspects will suddenly come together and like, oh, if I do this over here, if this is going on on this part of the story, that can be used either later or right next to it to help solve this other problem. You never know how your brain will suddenly connect, again, either something that's in your book with something external that you are viewing or you know, listening to a friend tell a story and you realize how you can you can work part of that in. Or maybe there's two parts of the, of the same book that you're working on that you realize that by putting those two things together, you've solved the problem. And it's great when that happens. And then do make sure to write it down. I know right now in book five, which I'll be writing next year, I know I had something figured out for it and I cannot remember what it is. I'm trusting God that he'll bring it back to mind <laughs> by the time I get there. But for now, focusing on book four. There is one third sense of inspiration too that I want to discuss. And this is the general inspiration that we might also call motivation, that overwhelming sense to sit down and write. From what I've seen on Twitter, a lot of writers struggle with this disconnect where they have the time and motivation to write, but as soon as they sit down, they just stare at the screen and nothing comes out. Some poor writers even have a ton of good ideas as they go through their day, but can't recall any of them once they sit down. 
and there's been an overabundance of suggestions to combat this. Keep a notebook with you to write down ideas. Of course, we always think we'll be able to remember this particular idea. It's so good. Some people say play Dungeons and Dragons, so the stories played out there will give you ideas for your own stories. Of course, this usually applies only to fantasy, and you may need permission from your DM and or friends if the idea hoves a little too close to the original. Others will say to get some book or other on writing, or focus on writing something, anything, every day. And we're all reminded that we're supposed to be the masters of inspiration, not its slave. That if we wait to be inspired, we will never write. Two practices have served me well in being able to be kind of constantly inspired in this general sense and to consistently write. First, I read, and I read in my genre primarily, with occasional forays into other genres. What this does for me is, as I read, I invariably take issue with a story I'm reading, thinking, I would have written it this way, or I wouldn't have solved the problem like that. And once that part of my mind gets going, that sort of problem-solving side, it always wants to return to my own work, where I actually do have control over what happens. Sometimes reading inspires me in positive ways, like when my wife was reading Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew aloud to me and our infant son. He obviously doesn't understand what she's saying, but it's more interesting to us than this is a ball, the ball is bouncing, which, by the way, he also doesn't understand. Anyway, she was reading Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew to us, and it was great, and since my last work in progress... I was a mystery story. I was often eager to return and help Kibo find more clues and help solve the problem. And the second practice I do to help maintain my general source of inspiration may sound counterintuitive at first. I know this quote is from an author, but I've searched and searched and searched and I can't seem to find it. So forgive me for not being able to attribute this to the right person. Maybe if one of you who are listening know where this comes from, find me on Twitter or Facebook and let me know. I would love to give it the right attribution. The quote goes something along the lines of this. I don't stop writing until I know what I want to write next. I sort of modify this quote by saying, I'm going to write X number of words. My current goals run around a thousand words a day and stop when I know what comes next. Because if I've got to open the document tomorrow and sit basically inactive, trying to think of what comes next, I'm likely going to sit the entire session and do nothing. Conversely, if I can open the document and immediately start writing again, invariably the words have continued flowing until I've achieved that day's goal and sometimes even a little bit more. And so spending the rest of the day knowing what the next sentence or scene is that I'm going to write cannot help but make me eager to get back to the manuscript. So as a Christian writer, if I'm spending as much of my time each day with God and with my story ideas side by side, I would have to try very hard not to ask God for wisdom in writing my stories. Often this happens, I may not consciously think, hey, God helped me out with this. But as I mentioned before, he knows every thought that's on our mind. And I'm sort of working under the assumption that he's given me the skills and talents and the calling to write these stories until something happens to prove otherwise. But for now, he knows that I want wisdom in finding these things out. Oftentimes I do consciously pray and ask, but I think even if I'm not doing that, he's still there with me. He knows my thoughts, my desires. He knows the plan he has for me, the work he has for me to do. And if this is the work he's calling me to do, he's going to be giving me the inspiration as I focus on him and on it and continue to have this desire to do what it is he's called me to do. So I think at the end of the day, the verses from James 1 do end up inspiring both my walk with God and my work without me even having to try very hard sometimes. So I hope this episode has inspired you in your walk and in your work. Join me again next week as we start a sort of thematic series about our individuality as Christ followers and as writers with an episode looking at how we as Christians relate to those around us and the topic of genre fiction. Until then, keep the faith and keep writing. (laughs) 